Amen. Look with me to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah 43 is a text for, for this morning. And we're going to look at verses 22 to 44, 5. Now, um, it, I sent out an anchor, just a brief note, really wasn't our anchor thought, just a brief note of what we would be looking at um, this morning. And initially you saw that it was 22 to 28. And, but as I looked at it more and more, I think the better thing is to go, is to go into verse 5 as this thought completes itself in verse 5 of chapter 44. And I am going to read it to you because I think it would be helpful. Um, verse 22 of 43. Yet you have not called on me, O Jacob, but you have become weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought to me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have brought me not sweet cane with money, nor have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices. Rather, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue our case together. State your cause that you may be proved right. Your first forefather sinned. And your spokesmen have transgressed against me. So I will pollute the princes of the sanctuary. I will consign Jacob to the ban and Israel to revilement. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant. And Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb. Who will help you? Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. And you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offering and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by springs or streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And the other will call in the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to Yahweh, and will name Israel's name with honor. A great passage, really. And the title is, Sins Forgiven and Forgotten. What a great thought that is when you consider it. There is a blessing of our sins being forgiven. I mean, we see it very pronounced in Psalm 32, and, and the psalmist communicates there that uh, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose iniquities have been atoned for. And when we think about the Christian life, I mean, that is the weight of it, if you will. That, that is its foundation, that we are people whose sins have been forgiven, and they are forgotten. Now, when we think about forgotten, we're going to address that in a moment. Um, someone may say, well, how can it possibly be forgotten? God is an all-knowing God. He, he knows everything. He knows my every sin. Can he actually forget my sin? 
And we aren't talking about for, for forgetting in a literal sense that we may um, forget things. And as time goes on, we forget more things. Um, but God is not that way. Um, it is saying, I will not bring them to your charge. I will not have you pay the price for these sins once these sins have been forgiven. And for every believer, as you sit here right now, if you, you hear my voice and you know Christ, there's a joy there's because of the reality that your sins have been forgiven. And when you think about your life without Christ, where would it be? It would be a life that is under a, a principle, a command, an expectation that can never be met. As a matter of fact, in the book of Colossians, um, Paul says to the church at Colossae, he says that this certificate of debt, in chapter 2, he says, a certificate of debt which was hostile towards you was taken away. And how was it taken away? It was taken away by the cross. And so here are people, and I've said it, I'm not sure how many times as, we working, as we're working our way through Isaiah 40 to 48, that Isaiah, that is, Isaiah has communicated that Judah has committed what? What have they committed? Covenant what? Treachery. I said it time and time again. Covenant treachery has been committed by Judah, but nonetheless, we find in the midst of these indictments against Judah that God says, I will forgive you. Because as you remember back in chapter 43, in verses 1 to 7, and in particular in verse 4, he made that great grand statement. If you look at it briefly with me, 43, and then in verse 4, he says, Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored, and I love you. What a great statement. And remember, he's making this statement. What? Is he making this statement to a people who are repentant and whose hearts are right before him, who are worshiping with the sense of sincerity and joy and preciousness and purity? No, he isn't. It says, you're precious in my sight. You're honored, and I love you. How can God make that statement to a people who have committed covenant treachery and who are still committing it even as this, they would have read these words? Because God is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. God is the God of compassion and love and kindness. But yet, there, I must remind you, there must be a price paid. It's not just an arbitrary forgiveness. There is a standard that must be met. And that's why perhaps even once we get to chapter 48, I may skip ahead and look at Isaiah 52 and 53 because there is an ultimate servant who would make this forgiveness possible. And for us today, you sit here forgiven because of a servant who made that possible, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is not simply arbitrary. There is a standard that must be met, and we cannot meet that standard. And Judah surely couldn't meet the standard. They were violating the standard constantly. But God says, I am a forgiving God, and I will forgive you. I have committed to a covenant with you, and I will, despite you not holding up to the covenant, I will hold up this covenant. It's not possible that you can even. And so the passage unfolds this way. There are four considerations for us this morning. And one is the people's sins of neglect. And then the Savior's gracious forgiveness. So verses 22 to 24, they have neglected 
And then the Savior's gracious forgiveness, we see that in verse 25. Then 26 to 28, we see the Savior's justified chastisement. They will be chastised, but yet he is justified. And then 44, 1 through 5, the Savior's gracious intervention. And let me get into it straight away. First, the people's sins of neglect. Notice, if you will, look with me at chapter 43 and verse um, 22. Now, what you need to see in verses 22 to 24, uh, these transitions that are taking place, and they're marked by some key words. In the NASB, it's yet and but and nor, 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 and rather, because he says, yet you have not called on me. Why is, why is he saying yet? Why the contrast? Remember from last week, notice verse 21. And what we said in verse 21 is that God is going to take a people who are not praising him, and he's going to make them a people of praise. Verse 21, the people whom I form for myself will declare my praise. They will declare it. So that is coming. They will be a people renewed and saved. They will be a people who return, and they will offer up sincere praise to the Lord. Yet, he says, you've not called on me. Oh, Jacob, you have not, but you have become weary of me. So there's an indictment. Here's indictment number one. Indictment number one is this. Because remember, this is a court case, and and God is indicting them. But in the midst of this indictment, we're going to see this great story, this great declaration of forgiveness. And Yahweh addresses the claims of, they would have said, perhaps, no, we have called on you. But you haven't heard us. And we think the reason that you haven't heard us is you become weary of us. You're tired of us. And they're feeling pity for themselves thinking, no, we have sincerely called on Yahweh. And Yahweh has just turned his back on us. That's what's happened. Yahweh has forsaken his covenant towards us. No, he has not done that. And notice this word weary is going to come up quite often in this context. But if you go back to chapter 40. In chapter 40, notice it comes up here. In chapter 40, the end, 27 to 31. Notice what it says in verse 28. The everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator, does not become weary or tired. Verse 30, the youths grow weary, he says here. But those who walk with the Lord and wait on the Lord will not become weary. But what is interesting here, when he talks about being weary, the the word can actually carry this idea to be enslaved. Now, why is that important? And I'll tell you in a moment. They are trying to say, God, we have called out to you, but you haven't heard us. But notice what God, he turns it on him and says, no, you haven't called on me. You actually have become weary of me. I have not become weary of you. And then he says in verse 23, there's a second indictment. What's the second indictment? Well, the people have done what? The people have neglected their obligation to worship the Lord with sincerity and with sacrifices. In verse 23, it says, You have not brought to me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings, nor wearied you with incense. 
So the wording here is very interesting. Notice he says, they would have claimed, oh God, it's too much for us. We can't do this. He says, no, I've not put an extra burden on you. These things are reasonable for you. I've not wearied you. I've not enslaved you with the need to um, produce incense in an offering. Why is he bringing up this language? Because he wants them to understand. No, I've not done that. I want your heart. This is what he's saying. Because even if you would have done all of those things, if your heart is not in your sacrifices, if your heart is not in what you believe or your obligations, then all of it is a stench in my nostrils. This is something that we have seen throughout Scripture. All you need to do is God's account after an account to say, why is it that you bring me these offerings, but yet you show injustice to the widow and to the orphan? And this is God's indictment even later on in Isaiah. When he talks about in Isaiah 55, he says, well, the people of God are saying that we fast. He says, well, this is not the fast that I'm looking for. It's, it's not for a man to humble himself and to bow down. The fast that I'm looking for in Isaiah 55 is that you loose the bonds of wickedness that you show generosity to your fellow man. That is a true fast. And so what he's saying here is, uh, these offerings, even if you had done them all, if your heart is not in it, they are worthless. I've not burdened you. Don't think that I've burdened you with anything that you're not capable of fulfilling if your heart is pure. And this is a principle throughout Scripture, is it not? Um that God is a God that is looking for the heart more so than even religious sacrifice. And this is why Israel so often was rejected by the Lord, because they were people who had, were involved in religious expression without intimate engagement with the living God. So we see another indictment. Indictment number three, as this court case continues, verse 24. What does he say there? You have not brought me sweet cane with money, nor have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices. Rather, you have burdened me with your sins, and you have wearied me with, with your iniquities. No, I'm not the, you're not the one that's wearied and burdened. You're burdening me. How, how can God be burdened? By this consistent rejection of God's clearly stated principles by the consistent rejection of God's prophets who would bring the word of God, by the consistent rejection of God's principle that says the heart must be right before you can offer any form of worship. So no, I'm the one that's burdened. You're not burdened with sacrifices. That should have been a joy to you. That should have been a great, a joyous obligation that you were so willing to fulfill. The true burden is the burden of your sins and I'm wearied with your iniquities, is what he's saying. Now, sweet cane, as the Nazbi has here, sweet cane with honey. What does this mean? Um, and it actually could be a fragrant calamus. And, and that's something that was actually used um, to put on the anointing oil. And you see it in Exodus and Jeremiah. So he's saying, in order to make the anointing oil fragrant and in one sense be something that's acceptable in the, in the nostrils of God, um, this was added to the anointed oil. And he's saying, you haven't done that. Why? Because you're not thinking about ways that you can please the Lord. You've neglected it. So I indict you. 
And remember, if you go back to the text again in verse 24, nor have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices. Why the fat of your sacrifices? What does this mean? Well, if you were to look at um, Leviticus chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, the fat was the portion of the Lord because it represented that which was um, symbolic of wealth, symbolic of something. Because say, for instance, if you will, um, the fat portion of, um, remember Joseph's vision and what was the vision um, and there are going to be seven of each, seven cows that were what? Skinny and seven cows that were what? Fat, if you will, because it represented the sense in which uh, there's been a blessing that is there. <laughs> I won't make any comment on that. <laughs> so he says here, the fat of the offering belongs to me, is what he's communicating. It's this good portion that should be offered up to the Lord. But you haven't done it. So he indicts them again. So we have three indictments. You're claiming that I called on you. Um, Are you called on me? But you haven't. You haven't called on me. Not really. Not from a sincere heart. You neglected your obligations, although you think they're burdensome to you. They really aren't. The burden is really your sin. And that's why the servant is the one and the only one who could carry it away. So this court case, they don't really have much of a case, do they? Because God says, yes, although you will be a people of praise, he brings forth these three indictments against them. And he says, but yet, notice the second consideration, the Savior's gracious forgiveness. And what's interesting about it, you don't really see a transition here. Um. He states the case, you, indictment number one, guilty. Indictment number two, you're guilty. Indictment number three, you're guilty. And so one would expect in verse 25, what might you expect in verse 25? Therefore, what? Someone can say it out loud for a moment. Punishment. Chastisement. Because that would happen in a court case, would it not? Uh, here is the clear evidence against this person Here's the state's case against. Evidence one, evidence two, evidence three. Now, here's your punishment. But no, God is not that way here. He says, notice verse 25, God's gracious intervention. And so what does he make? There's a declaration that's stated, and it's a declaration of forgiveness. What does he say? I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions, And what is the motivation? What is the reason behind it? What does he say? For my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Now earlier, God has said to his people, for your sake, I am going to bless you. Now he says, for my own sake, I am going to forgive you. And that's the joy of the Christian experience that we as the people of God, God has always had this sense in which he has a purpose, and that purpose is to bring glory and honor to his name. And we are people caught up in this redemptive narrative, and as God glorifies himself, we benefit from it. Um, If you will, it's uh, perhaps the illustration doesn't uh, cut the mustard, but nonetheless, um, if you think about it in the realm of, of athletics, if you will, 
in the realm of athletics, uh, there's a team, and there's surely stars on the team. There's a coach that's on the team, and there's a, um, coaches on that team itself. And you have the stars that, in one sense, drive the team. But guess what? If they win a world championship, everyone gets a ring. Isn't that amazing? I mean, a guy can have this big diamond ring on his finger, and you say, what did you do? Oh, I rode the bench. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I wouldn't mind that. Well, no, I, I would mind that. I would want to play, honestly. I would want to play. <laughs> they, there's a ring that they have because they're a part of the what? Of the team. God has an objective, and that objective is this. I will bring glory to my name. All that I do is to glorify myself. And you are the instruments, the witnesses of me glorifying myself. And so what does he do? In God's unconditional election, election, what does he do? I choose you, and it is nothing in you. I choose you. Despite your sin, I've chosen you. Not anything in you. And if we go back to the realm of athletics, if you will, um, no team drafts the worst player, do they? Have you ever heard of that? Well, not intentionally. That's true. <laughs> That's a good word right there. <laughs> that works. <laughs> exactly. They're thinking, this guy has so much potential. Let's trade drafts. Let's give him $100 million. I just saw a guy recently. He just signed a new contract, a linebacker, which I, you know, I play linebacker, so I appreciate that. A five-year deal, $100 million. $100 million. Why are they giving $100 million? Because you're one of the best. But what does the scripture tell us? Not many mighty. Not many noble. He's chosen the foolish of the world to shame the wise. So what was in you? What was it? What, what was the potential that God saw in you? We says, yeah, Tom, that guy, one day, he's going to be an excellent elder at Grace Community Church. That's why I'm choosing him. No. I, I mean, I love you, but it wasn't. <laughs> that, wasn't <laughs> that wasn't in the mind of God. Yeah, that Hargrove guy, one day he's going to get it together and be a halfway decent preacher and minister. Yes, that's why I want him. No, friend. All sinners. Nothing to offer the Lord. And he takes us, if you will, and he saves us. And he begins to mold us into the image of Christ. And, do, and then we, began, we can become great vessels for his glory. Amen? So he says here, God is gracious, even I. It is exclusive. Let's look at this idea, I, even I. Look at Isaiah 41, if you will. 41.10. So he makes the statement in verse 25, I, even I. Make sure you understand it is not because of you. It's not because of your sacrifices. And they're half-hearted, so let me let you know that right now. It's not because your worship. It is terribly inconsistent, and that's an understatement, if you will. And he says, no, it is I who will save you. Verse 10, verse 40, chapter 41, do not fear. I am with you. Don't anxiously look about. I am your God. I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Look at uh, verses 17 to 19 in chapter 41. What does it say there? They're afflicted and needed are seeking water, but there is none. Their tongue is parched. 
I am Yahweh. I will answer them myself. I am the God of Israel. I will not forsake them. I will open rivers. I will make the wilderness. I will put the cedar. I will put the juniper there. Because in verse 20, I am the Holy One of Israel. I am the one who will do it. Look at chapter 42, verses 14 through 16. Again, this statement, I am the one that orders history. I am the one that saves. Judah, make sure you understand this. Your works are worthless. And this is why later on in Isaiah, Isaiah would say what? Your works are like filthy. Finish the statement. What does he say? Rags. Notice verse 14 of chapter 42. I've kept silent for a long time. I will lay waste the mountains. I will make the rivers. I will lead the blind. I will make darkness into light. These are the things I will do. I will do and not leave them undone. Amen that God completes his salvation and all that his mind is set out to do. So this is what he's communicating. Look at chapter 43. And throughout 43 itself, I, I, I. Notice, if you will, in verse 1, I have redeemed you. I have called you. I, verse 2, I will be with you. Verse 3, I am Yahweh. Verse 4, we've considered it early. I love you. I will give other men for you. Verse 5, I am with you. I will bring you from the east and from the west. Verse 6, I will say to the north, give them up. I have created, notice verse 7, whom I created for my, what? What does it say? Glory. Whom I have formed, even I have made. Then in verse 10, what does it say? Verse 10, my servant whom I have chosen, I am he. Verse 11, even I am Yahweh. And it goes on and on. This clear declaration that all that we have, all of salvation is a result of a sovereign God acting for his glory. And we are recipients of that. Yeah, we've been drafted in. We've been called. But notice, if you will, go back to 43 and then go back to 43.25, this, this gracious forgiveness that is here. So it's established God is the one that is the center of it. Notice what he says, and the one who wipes out your transgressions, wipes out. Um, we see this idea, wipes out uh, or blots out, some translations may say, because we will see it in, just turn with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. David was surely thankful for this reality in his own life because in the psalmist communicates what? Verse 10, creating me a new heart, renew a steadfast spirit with me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Don't take your spirit from me. Restore to me, sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltness, O my God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue and my will joyfully sing of your righteousness, and he will do it, obviously, forever. He is the God who blots out, and we should be thankful for that. Then what else does he say? Go back to Isaiah. So he blots them out. He, he, he wipes, them from, wipes them from the record, if you will. Then he says, your transgressions 
for my sake. Transgressions. So let's pause there for a moment. This is really important that you understand sort of uh, the, the heaviness of what he is communicating here. So he says, your transgressions, and earlier, notice verse 24, he says, you weird me with your iniquities. We've already seen that he says your sins. So we have iniquities and transgressions and sins, but all these words having a nuance to them, if you will. It's important that we understand it. Go back to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah 1, transgression. Uh, the word for transgression, it carries a sense of spiritual rebellion. And it, it's saying spiritual rebellion, but it's saying spiritual rebellion with the implication of full knowledge. Full knowledge. That's what a transgression is. And Isaiah chapter 1, notice if you will, Isaiah 1, and then in verse 2, yes, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. And it's the same word, but here translated revolted. At times it may be translated rebelled against. So God is saying, I have wiped out all of your rebellious acts, all your revolting against me. I set forth a covenant And that covenant was to be nothing but a blessing to you, but you have rebelled. And that's why the word carries the idea of spiritual rebellion, but with full knowledge. Because when we think about a rebellion, if you will, uh, we think about a coup, perhaps, in a government. And that coup takes place, and they're essentially saying what? We do not want this government. You rebel against a government. And what is happening here, here's the divine government, if you will. You rebelled against me, but what am I going to do? I'll blot it out. You rebelled against me, and what will I do? I'll wipe it all away. Wipe it away with what? Your sacrifices, no, because those are imperfect. The fat that comes from the portion, according to Leviticus 3, is, is the Lord's. No, no, that won't do it. I wiped them out by a blood, and the blood that comes from a lamb. And there's but one lamb. And this is why those transgressions can be wiped away. God makes a declaration. David is an example of this sense of rebellion transgression because he rebelled against the Lord with full knowledge. And, and we know how that unfolds. He calls for Bathsheba. He seduces her. He tempts Uriah to violate his own conscience. He determined in his heart that Uriah would have to die. He crafts the scheme against Uriah. He actually constructs a letter that condemns Uriah. He sends the letter by Uriah. He involves Joab in the sin as well. And he attempted to hide his sin. That's full knowledge. And along the way, David could have, at any point in time, uh, if in his coup against the Lord, if you will, he could have turned away and says, I am in rebellion. What am I doing calling for this woman? Now that I lay with her, what am I doing that I'm going to violate the conscience of Uriah, one of my own uh, mighty men? 
what am I doing that I'm actually going to craft the letter myself and I'm going to send it by the hand of this man, his very execution? What am I doing that I'm going to involve Joab in this sin as, as well? But this is what sin does, doesn't it? Sin takes away sensibility and common sense. And even at times, sin takes away what is natural, which is self-protection. Are we not all, all engaged in some level of self-protection? And that's not wrong, so understand that. It's not wrong to protect self. We do it all the time. We can do it in, in, a, in the physical realm to protect ourselves from physical harm. And we make decisions spiritually and even emotionally. Uh, we protect ourselves. Uh, someone in a relationship, uh, they protect themselves from an individual. All they've done is hurt me. Then you, you counsel with them and say, why do you still remain in the relationship apart from marriage? Because if you're in marriage, you must work through it. But why do you keep going back to him? He's a bum. I don't understand this. Well, I'm, well yes. <laughs> why? You come back again, he's hurt, he hurts you. He hurts you. He hurts you. Then there's something that's it's lost there. Self, then eventually someone may say, you know what, I need to end this relationship now. Self-protection. But what happens with sin is all of the, some of that can be lost, can't it? Have any of you at some point in time, you made a decision that was a sinful decision, and you said, you said what was I thinking when I did that? Why did I make that choice? The opportunity for escape was right in front of me, but I didn't choose it. I knew there were going to be consequences, but I thought perhaps I wouldn't feel the full brunt of the consequences. Maybe I wouldn't feel the consequences at all. Maybe I would escape the consequences. And this is what sin can do. And then he says iniquities. Go back, if you will, to verse 24. He says iniquities. And this word has a nuance to it as well. Um, it, it literally means this sense of to be sown, sown crooked. Um, it's a conscience effort to do wrong. It, it has an emphasis on guilt and liability. Some have even said it's, um, it's criminality. One, um, it was actually Craig and Tate in their Psalms commentary said it actually means a criminality, a lack of respect for the divine will. So transgression, I'm rebelling, um, iniquities, there's criminality that's involved. Uh, there's liability that's surely there. I, I have a disregard for the divine will. But God says, yes, that is true of you, but I will blot it all out. So why spend this time talking about these words? And, and of course, the other word that he says, your sins, and that's simply the idea of the most general word, to miss the mark. Now, often it is intentional, but it may not be intentional, whereas iniquity surely is its criminality. Transgression surely is its rebellion. And God says, yes, whether it be you missed the mark, whether it be criminality, whether it be rebellion, I am a gracious God. That's why these words are important at times. Society um, doesn't like to use certain words. Do you agree with that? Society would just assume that we not talk about rebellion and criminality and, and not even the word sin itself. Let's not even use that. More or less talking about the nuances of the word iniquity and transgression. 
Society would prefer other words that are more acceptable. They, they want us to say, well, no, it's not adultery, it's an affair. Or they even go further, they say, well, no, it's not adultery, um, it's, it's a love mix, which is utterly ridiculous. Do you agree with me? Yeah, exactly, that's the question, what is that? <laughs> yeah. No, it's not. Or they say, well, it's a lifestyle choice. No, it's rebellion against the living God. And the newest thing that I've been hearing in the last five or so years or so, well, that person has sexual addiction. And so now that they have a sexual addiction, the moment you hear sexual addiction, then I'm really not what? I'm not responsible for it, am I? No. I mean, there's a word. I mean, it is in the King James, but I won't say it now um, because some of you, it may trip some of you up. But it is a, a word that is pretty direct that would say, no, you're not, uh, you don't have sexual addiction. Well, I say you're a whoremonger. That's what you are. But let's not say that. And now today we say, well, it's same-sex attraction. No, it's, it's the lust of the heart that is absolutely unnatural. But the beauty of it is this. To this people, God says, verse 25, I will wipe them all out. And then notice, if you will, it continues. Um, if you will, the third consideration, the Savior's justified chastisement. And where does it begin? Um, there is evidence that's requested. Evidence requested. Look at verse 26. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue our case together. State your cause that you may be proved right. Notice what he says. Let us argue our case together. So let's go to the court of law. Put me in remembrance. What does it mean, put me in remembrance? Or really can be translated, um, remind me of when you've been faithful. Remind me of when you have offered up sacrifices with purity of heart. Remind me of your consistency of heart in serving me. Remind me of it. One translation simply says this instead of put me in remembrance, which is a bit, a bit clumsy, if you will. Meet me in court is what the contemporary English version says. And actually, the, the Net Bible says this. Um, <clears throat> remind me of what happened. Let's debate. You prove to me that you are right. And this is what God is saying. I've already indicted you in these three areas is there really anything else that you want to say to present to me that's going to prove me otherwise? No, it's not. But I'll give you one more chance, is what he's saying. Let's meet in court. Question. Anyone here right now, this very moment, uh, would any of you want to meet the Lord in court? And so, oh, absolutely, I'll state my case. And if you think about your life prior to the living God, that is, knowing the living God. Would any of you wanted to meet the Lord in court? No, not at all. Some of you attempted to. You say, wait a minute. No, I didn't. Oh, absolutely you did. Some of you attempted to meet God in court. How did you attempt to meet God in court? By your works. Some of you may have been Roman Catholic, and you were attempting to meet God in court. By what? Your good works. Your confessions. Your rosary. Some of you are attempting to meet God in court by being a good conservative Bible-attending person. I attend a good Bible-teaching church. I, I, take, I take notes in a Bible-teaching community. 
I'm involved in Bible language. And that's attempting to meet God in court. And God has sent you indictment number one, indictment number two, indictment number three, indictment number one million. Because all have sinned and fall short of the what? The glory of God. See, we all attempted to meet God in court at some point in time. Some of you, perhaps it was a short court because you came to the Lord early in life. Some of you spent a good portion of your life attempting to say, Oh, Lord, look at what I have. Look at what I've done. Look at my faithfulness. Look at my religion. And God says, "Uh, No. No, not at all. Because I'm holy. Because I'm a holy God. Unless you can bring before me to this court perfection, unless you can stand before me this holy court of which I'm juror, of which I'm judge, and say to me, I am perfect. Punishment. And none of us can say we're perfect. None. And before this perfect God, these imperfect people have violated him again and again and again and again. But he says, but yet, I will wipe it out. I will forgive you. I would do it because of who I am. So he requests the evidence. He says, remind me or put me in court? Oh, that's right, you have no case, do you? And then the evidence stated So he actually states the evidence. Notice verse 27. He says, Your first forefathers sinned, and your spokesmen have transgressed against me. So I think he's going back all the way back to Jacob and saying, Your first forefather, he sinned against me ultimately. And in a history of fathers and princes and kings and prophets and times, you have sinned against me time and time again. That's why some of the northern tribes went to Assyria. I've had enough. And that's why you're about to follow your northern brothers, and you're going to go to Babylon. But when you read this in Babylon, know that I'm a gracious God, and I will bring you back again. So the evidence, he asked for evidence. There is none. He states the evidence. You've been sinning against me since your forefathers, and I've been gracious and patient towards you, but it ran out, if you will, with the northern tribes, and your time is coming now. Friends, let me say this to you, not intended, and often in preaching these moments happen. Let me say this to you now. Don't test the Lord. Don't test the Lord. God is a gracious and patient God, is he not? He really is. But don't presume upon the Lord. I mean, if there's something right now in your heart, in your life, that you must repent, do it, even as you sit there. Don't presume on God. Because there could there come a point when the Lord says, okay, you, it's chastisement. Because a person can go from having a life that seems to be well-ordered, structured, blessings to disarray. Then the punishment stated, verse 28, the punishment stated, 
So, because of this, I will pollute the princes of the sanctuary, and I will consign Jacob to the ban and Israel to revilement. I've indicted you. You've attempted to (laughs) convince me that you called on me and you really didn't. You thought that I had wearied you with all these regulations. It really wasn't true. It should have come from a heart heart of joy. You have a history of sin, and I was patient towards you, and you have taken that for granted, but now punishment is coming. You say, wait a minute, how can there be forgiveness but also punishment? Because there are times in our lives when God must bring chastisement to teach us a lesson, does it not? And it doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. I mean, I, all of us that are parents, we love our kids, but at some point in time, unless you're some new age um, woke parent, you had to do what? You had to chasten your kids, did you not? Absolutely you did. I love you, and because I love you, I do this. That doesn't change my love for you, but it's necessary that you experience the chastisement. And so with God, he says, yes, I love you, but yet you must be chastened. It's an expression even of my love. And that's why in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us that God, every son whom he received, they go through what? Uh, Chastisement, because it produces what? of righteousness in us. And at times we may go through difficulty and make sure we're not the um, incompetent uh, friends of Job, save one, Elihu, where they would say, well, obviously you've done something wrong. That's the reason that you're being punished. We know at times we go through difficulty because we've done something right, because we're living for the Lord. Here's the last thought. The Savior's gracious intervention. And this is why it's best, because it's connected to this thought beforehand. Because notice verse 21. It says, The people whom I form for myself will declare my praise. Yet, you will declare it, but you really aren't doing it in the present. You've not called on me. And then verse 28, notice what he says, I'm going to consign you to the ban and to revilement. I am going to chasten you. But notice there's another contrast, verse 1. But now, listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen, don't fear. This is the thought of Ephesians chapter 2. And um, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us what? Verses 1 to 3, all of us were dead in our transgressions and sins. Then in verse 1, my favorite phrase in all of the Bible, verse 4, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And this is what we see here. This is another but God moment. Yes, I am going to consign you. Yes, there is chastisement. Yes, there is divine punishment that comes from a hand of loving wisdom. But remember, there's going to be ultimate forgiveness. And we see it here. But now, he says, you're a chosen people. You are my people. Verse 2, I have formed you. Don't fear. I will help you. And Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Very interesting reference to Israel here. And it's only uh, only other place you see this is in Deuteronomy. Jeshurun, why does he bring that up? I think he's bringing it up to say it's a unique way to refer to them. And it's a way to communicate intimacy even with them as well. Despite your treachery, 
I will be intimate with you. And he says, I will help you. And it's using an imperfect tense. He's saying, I will continue to help you. I will be on your side. Then in verse 3, as a result of that, I'm going to pour a blessing on the land, even my spirit upon you and in your offspring. And I will raise up people among you that are not presently there. I'm going to bless you. And then they have a claim at the end. Notice verse 5. There's a claim. This one will say, I am Yahweh's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob. Remember, what did he say in the first part of verse 22? You have not called on me, right? And now because of God's gracious intervention, he says, you will call on me. So what is this communicating to us? Unless the Lord intervenes with his grace, we will not be a people who will call on the Lord. And he says, some will even write on their hand, belonging to Yahweh, and then you will honor my name. And you will honor your name. Now, you're walking in dishonor. What are some lessons learned? Let's close with these thoughts, guys. Number one, we understand, I think, even the purpose of life through this. And what he's saying for Israel, here is your purpose And that purpose is to be a witness for me to the nations. And so for us, we have the same thing. We're a people who are called to be a witness amongst, as Philippians 2 says, we live in the midst of a perverse and dark generation. But we're to be lights amongst this darkness. Number two, we see the reason for forgiveness. We're reminded of this. God is saying, I'm going to forgive you for my own sake, for my glory that people will look to me and they'll realize what a great God. He is unlike the gods of the land. The gods of the land, they would never forgive a people like that. That's why we have to do all of these things to appease our deities. And once we've appeased our deities, maybe then he will bless the land. And I think he even talks about um, in verse, if you will, 3, pouring out water, the streams, because these deities would have been these deities that they would have to call out because we're calling that we want rain to come upon the land. And now we have to appease this deity so that rain would come. And God is saying, I'm not that sort of God. Even when you don't repent, I will bless you nonetheless. You say, wait a minute, that's a You've, you've interjected the thought, Hargrove. Did you just say, even if we don't repent, God will bless? In this instance, what are you saying? Yes. I'm going to keep my covenant with you. But I'm going to bring about repentance by my grace. I'm going to bring about repentance by chastisement. I'm going to bring you back to myself, is what he's communicating. So we, we learn this beautiful picture of forgiveness. Then, here's another lesson for us. Active and passive witnessing for the Lord. We said this last week. There is a a sense in active witness. We go out and we tell others about Christ and who he is. But there is a passive witness. God is saying, when I bring you back into the land, you are a passive witness. How is that? What do you mean a passive witness? The nations will see God's dealing with Judah and say, oh my, what a great God. What a great God that he's already defeated the Assyrians. What a great God that now he's defeated the Babylonians. The Israelites, the Judeans, don't even have to say a word. It is God simply saying, be my witnesses by being, what, brought back into the land. Then that will glorify me. And even if we think about this idea of a passive witness, you heard it communicated by Michael Reeves last week, a wonderful text 
um, Psalm 30, verses 3 and 4, ultimately it communicates this, that there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Why is that important? Because God is saying, I'm unlike all the other gods of the nations. I'm a forgiving God. The other gods of the nations, they're wrathful gods. Not that God is not a God of wrath. But they're not known for forgiveness. God is. I'm unlike these other gods. And this is why time and time and time again, we see these statements about idols and I am the one and I am he. It's like in the court case, the evidence keeps coming and coming and coming. And the question is, why does he keep repeating himself so often? Because we tend to do what? Someone answer that question. You know it. You tend to forget. We say God is a faithful God. Ask your question. How many of you believe that God is a faithful God? Hmm. We're all in on that, are we not? Do you believe that God is a loving God? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you don't have to raise your hands on this. Well, let me ask you one more. Do you believe that God is a patient God? I mean, why did that come out even more? That resounded even more, did it not? Oh, my. And I can tell you why it resounded even more. Because you've seen in particular ways where God has been patient with you. Have you not? Then, oh, my. How loving are we? How patient are we? How faithful are we? And this is why we need these reminders. And then we we need reminders to say, God, I fall so short but yet you forgive me. And you will not take away your salvation from me. Here, let me give you a couple more thoughts. The justification for divine wrath. God is a holy God, and he says, I am justified. The indictments are clear, but yet I do it for your benefit. And I would say this, the abomination of heartless religion, of heartless religion. This is what they had. Let us not engage in that. Don't engage in heartless religion. Be as, as he was, they were referred to as Jehesarim, this term of intimacy, that we walk intimately with the Lord. And the last thought is this. The indomitable intention of God. What do we mean by that? God has decided, and it will come about. Amen. And as he said earlier, who can reverse it? God has saved you, and you will be saved. This is the God we serve, amen? <laughs> what a beautiful God. And what's, what's unfortunate about some preaching today, when you don't mention sin and how horrible sin is, how can you truly appreciate what you have? And this is why Jesus Christ himself said in, in Luke's gospel, he who has been forgiven little, loves little. And he who has been forgiven much, loves much. Amen? Have you been forgiven much? Then love much. Father, we thank you for these words you give us, your goodness, grace, and mercy. Help us to live them out. And even right now, Lord, if we just pause for a moment, each person asking as we would transition here and we go to 
eventually a communion time reflecting on Jesus Christ's death to appreciate it, to prepare for it, to not just hear words that, yes, okay, he blots out our transgressions. Oh, yeah, that word means this, and, and that word means that, and here's a cross-reference or two. But this is a living God says, saying, I love you. Serve me. I do it for my glory. I do it for your benefit. Help us to appreciate that. Even now, individually, we can thank you for that. We bless you in Christ's name. Amen.